All right, it is great to be with you again today. Thank you all for having me. Uh, enjoy getting to chat with some of y'all, getting to know some of y'all a little bit. Uh, let's start in. We're going to look at Psalm 78, but I want to frame this for us here for a few minutes before we jump into it. Perhaps the biggest crisis in our day is the family crisis, a family crisis that stems from the sexual revolution. The sexual revolution has made our culture anti-marriage and anti-child. The sexual revolution has made our culture very confused about sex and about the sexes. Uh, since marriage and family are crucial building blocks to civilization, this really is a crisis. It is a disaster in the making, and we're seeing this unfold right before our very eyes. Uh, there have been many revolutions that have come and gone, many revolutions that have rocked the world over the last several centuries, but the bloodiest of them all has been the sexual revolution. You've got the American Revolution, the French, the Russian, the Chinese. All these revolutions shed blood, but the sexual revolution has killed more than all of them put together. Millions upon millions of innocent children have been slaughtered in the womb in the aftermath of the sexual revolution. 60 million plus in our nation alone. And every one of those abortions represents an instance where adult sexual desires or adult sexual pleasure was put above the innocent child's right to life. And that is... A travesty. Of course, the sexual revolution had to resort to abortion because it separated sex from marriage. And having separated sex from marriage, it needed to separate sex from fruitfulness as well. The sexual revolution is a war on sex, on the fruit of sex, and on the sexes. It has created such massive confusion that we no longer even know what a man is. We're to the point where we don't even know what a woman is. Uh, Shane Morris I uh, had a brief article not too long ago that tied some of these things together. And I, I usually don't like to read something this long, but this is really good and it does help frame this issue for us. So listen to what Morris has to say. We vastly underestimate the extent to which debates over gender roles, even within the church, are founded on the presumption that sex can reliably be had without producing babies. The sheer fact of birth control has thrown even Christians into a world of artificial confusion. Should a woman build a career or be a mom? What city will she live in? How much education will she pursue? Should she date around or settle and get married? How many kids should she have? What standard of living does she demand? What will her work-home balance be with her partner? Take away the drugs and devices used to artificially suppress a reproductive system, and I would add abortion to this, and a stunning number of these questions simply answer themselves. People's whole mental landscape about sex changes because it's no longer some self-expressive game. It's the origin of life. We have this dumb modern conceit that our great-grandparents were prudes with their modesty standards and shotgun weddings. They were not. Sex made babies back then. Do you really understand that? To even think of fooling around was to invite a cascade of life-altering events. We've forgotten this because the spell of contraception has so altered our worldview that we don't even understand our bodies anymore. When young people today, even in the church, say they're not sure they want kids, they are almost never saying they're not sure they want sex. 
They're saying they want to chemically isolate the very beginning of the human reproductive cycle so they can dwell in maximal gratification indefinitely while pursuing idealized middle-class hobbies and status symbols. They just need the right buddy slash roommate for it. I've seen Christian young people get married with this mentality without even the intention or openness to having kids. We all have. What we often don't realize is what an absolutely bizarre and unnatural frame of mind this is and how dependent it is on technology. For almost all of human history, the choice was, the choice was simple, celibacy or babies. Those limits were very good for us in some very important ways. Marriage and exclusivity flowed naturally out from them together with culturally appropriate gender roles. Marriage really is natural. Now those roles and even marriage itself looks incredibly quaint and arbitrary. So much so that many delude themselves into thinking they actually are arbitrary, but they are not. They are deeply fitted into the grooves of human nature and have honed us for millennia. The tie between sex and babies has shaped our households, our clans, our clothes, our legal system, our economies, our nations, our civilization, our psyches. And in about a single generation, we have broken that tie. What did we think would happen? That tie will not easily be reestablished in the foreseeable future. Sex will continue to mean subjective things rather than babies but it is critical that we understand that we are the products of an iron link between sex and reproduction. Our medical and chemical wizardry may prevent conception, but it cannot change our natures. Now, I read all of that because Morris is exactly right, and that point needs to be made. By God's design, all of these things go together. By nature, all of these things go together. Sex, fruitfulness, marriage, sex roles, our technology may allow us to live in unnatural ways, but our technology does not actually change our nature. Uh, we still reflect God's design, even if we refuse to fulfill it. It is particularly the attack on children that I want to focus on this morning. In God's design, the generations are distinct but linked. And throughout God's word, we see that when God gives children to his people, this is a blessing. Psalm 127 says children are a heritage from the Lord. Psalm 128 goes on to describe them as olive plants gathered around your table. Olive plants, of course, representing the covenant. That is the holiest in, in, in the Old Testament uh, symbolic system. The olive plant is the holiest of all plants. Uh, the uh, olive plant. Uh, Olive wood, of course, was used in the tabernacle and the temple. Uh, Jesus was uh, crucified on the Mount of Olives and buried and resurrected on the Mount of Olives. So this is, this is a sign of holiness, a sign of our children's covenant membership. Malachi chapter 2, verse 15, God says that he brings man and woman together and makes them one flesh in the covenant of marriage because he seeks godly offspring. Uh, and of course, in Genesis 18, Abraham is commanded by God to teach his household, to train his household in righteousness and in justice. God wants us to raise up a godly generation. But in order to have that godly generation, we have to have that generation. We have to have kids. And in our culture, what do we see happening? What's going on in our culture today? Marriage rates have collapsed. That's one problem. Birth rates have collapsed as well. There is a war on marriage, a war on children. There is a war on fruitfulness. In fact, birth rates are basically at an all-time low, especially when judged against our present prosperity. And this is not just a problem in the U.S. It's actually a, a problem throughout uh, the, the modern world. Birth rates are at an all-time low. 
Uh, those birth rates are slightly higher for conservative religious people, and in the CREC circles I hang around in, I'm sure yours are very similar, you would think, oh, there can't possibly be a, you know, a, a, a birth rate crisis because we have so many babies in our midst, and that's certainly true. But you have to understand what's going on in the culture and in the world all around you. Uh, birth rates are collapsing, and again, it's slightly higher for conservative religious people, but still very low overall. Uh, there are very few children being born, and because everybody knows that children are our future, that makes children a very prized commodity. If secular people are not having children, where are they going to get those children? They're going to have to take our children and disciple them, enculturate them into their secular worldview. And you need to understand, this is happening. Uh, this is why there are huge fights over children. Everything that we call the culture war, you know, the, the so-called culture war that's going on, the whole culture war is really about children. Children are right at the heart of the culture war. It's all about the kids. Uh, maybe you saw footage from uh, school board fights uh, a while back, especially uh, last year. This was huge. There are all these fights happening at the, you know, these local school boards, and uh, you know, who controls the, the curriculum and, and what's going to be taught to the children in public schools. Well, why was that happening? Well, there's a lot of reasons for that, but one of the biggest reasons is, again, because everybody knows whoever controls education controls the children, and whoever controls the children controls the future. And because secularists are not having children of their own, they have to capture our children in order to have a next generation, to have a future. And that ratchets up the intensity of this battle over what the children are being taught. Or consider this, I'm not anti-college, I sent four kids to college, it can have its place, but consider what's going on with college these days. Consider things like uh, Joe Biden's plan to cancel uh, college debt. Why do progressives so badly want for everyone to go to college? So much so that they'll basically try to give a college education away and, and, and make it free for everybody. Why do progressives want everybody to go to college? Because most colleges are four-year-long indoctrin indoctrination camps in leftist thought, in, in the progressive worldview. And so again, getting everybody into college, because most colleges belong to the progressives, getting everybody into college is one more way they can try to control the kids and disciple the kids in their demented and depraved worldview and control the future by controlling the next generation. So a lot is at stake in the children. God has an interest in our children. Uh, the culture has an interest in our children. Uh, one thing we find throughout scripture is God's covenant promises always include our children. God says, I will be a God to you and to your children. The children God gives to his people are a great blessing. But as with every other blessing, blessings bring responsibilities and blessings require stewardship. And so it is with our children. Each generation is like a link in a chain. Each generation is like a link in a covenant chain. And God wants to keep the chain unbroken for his people. He wants the faith to be passed on from one generation to the next like a baton in a relay race. Now, if you ask the question, how do you pass on this faith, and especially what do you do in a situation where that link, uh, the link between the generations has been broken, what do you do? Psalm 78 gives us a great deal of wisdom about this. So I wanna, I'm not going to read the whole psalm. I just want to read the first eight verses, and then I'll, I'll talk about more of this. But uh, this will set the stage for us. This is Psalm 78, verses 1 to 8, a contemplation of Asaph. 
Give ear, O my people, to my law. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, telling to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wonderful works that he has done. For he has established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should make known to their children, that the generation to come might know them, the children who would be born, that they may arise and declare them to their children, that they may set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments and may not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not set its heart aright and whose spirit was not faithful to God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you are a God of everlasting faithfulness, that your faithfulness is from one generation to the next. Father, help us to understand this, how the generations ought to relate to one another, the legacy we inherit, what that means, the legacy we pass on, what that means. Father, help us to grasp these things so we might live faithfully in the time you've given us. This we ask in Christ's name. Amen. How do the generations relate to each other? I'm sure we've got several generations in this room. You've got children and parents, got grandparents. Do we have any great-grandparents in this room? I don't, I don't see anybody who qualifies as a great-grandparent just by looking at you, but you probably will in your congregation uh, soon enough. Uh, we have these different generations. How do the different generations relate to one another? Uh, today, there is a tendency to sharply distinguish and even separate the generations from one another. Sociologists even come up with names for these generations. So you've got the greatest generation, that would be my grandparents. Uh, you've got the baby boomers, that'd be my parents. Uh, you've got Gen X, so that would be me. Uh, you've got the millennials, who are always taking a beating on Babylon B. You know, the millennials kind of get blamed for everything these days. Um, They're running jokes like, you know, um, theologians agree to raise the age of accountability to 30 for the millennials, (laughs) stuff like that. Uh, You've got Gen Z or iGen, the up and coming generation. Sociologists will study these generations uh, and they will point out how each generation tends to have its own characteristics, its own culture, its own vocabulary, its own music. A lot of this is the fruit of what we could call pop culture. Pop culture is, for the most part, a modern phenomenon. It's very market-driven. It is disposable by design. Artifacts of pop culture are intended to become obsolete because if they make that song too much of a classic, you might just keep listening to it and not buy the next one. And so it's got to have a kind of built-in obsolescence. Uh, Modern pop songs are not made to stand the test of time the way that Handel's Messiah uh, is. I mean, we still play Handel's Messiah in our day. I doubt they're going to be playing Justin Bieber's music, you know, a few generations from now. Uh, These things just come and go. That's part of what pop culture is all about. It's all about fads and fashions and trends and changing styles and what's popular in the moment. And of course, what drives a great deal of this is making money. A lot of this is market-driven. But one implication of pop culture is that it has driven a wedge between the generations. What are the odds today that father and son will like the same music? Now, I know maybe in families like ours, it's actually pretty high. But out there in the culture, it's very, very low, very rare for a father and a son to like the same music because each generation has its own music. So they each get their own, uh, their own music uh, to enjoy. Um, I've heard of moms who will very dutifully check their teenagers' phones 
but they cannot understand what they're reading. They cannot understand their texts and their kids' emails because it's like they're practically written in a different language with the text abbreviations and with all of the slang. It's just like a different language. And so there's a, there's a language barrier even between the generations. Our culture tends to prize youth, and so each new generation of young people will tend to cast off tradition and develop their own culture. Of course, when the previous generation doesn't have much wisdom to share with you anyway, that's not as big of a loss as it once was, uh, but our culture prizes youth, and so each generation thinks, oh, we've got to reinvent everything ourselves and start from scratch. We don't want to inherit anything from our parents. Youth culture basically means rejecting your parents' beliefs, your parents' ways. Novelty gets normalized. Instead of honoring the older generation, you mock them. In fact, it really is like every generation starts from scratch in a certain sense, casting off whatever tradition and wisdom uh, from the past remains. This casting off of tradition is very, very dangerous. Jordan Peterson has said, the careless demolition of tradition invites the emergence of chaos. When you cast off tradition, Chaos is the result, and we're seeing that. When a new generation rejects the accumulated wisdom of past generations, things fall apart, and that's our world today. Our culture pits the generations against one another. And so young people say, don't trust anyone over 30, and older people say, what's wrong with kids today? And so we have this war of the generations. The generations are cut off from one another. Now, this is a huge problem. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's very wrong. Scripture actually shows us that the generations are linked. And if, um, if you um, if you think about it this way, if you pollute a river upstream, the people downstream will either be poisoned by that pollution or they will have to clean it up, one or the other. Those are the only two options. Generations inevitably influence one another and have obligations to one another. You have obligations to your ancestors and to your descendants. And so this view of pop culture is really wrong. It's very unbiblical. The practices that pop culture has locked us into are a really big problem. So that's one thing we have to be aware of, is there's a way of dividing the generations from one another that's very common in our culture, but it's a huge problem. But then there's some people who say, well, okay, yes, the generations are linked, and the generations are so linked that actually one generation locks the coming generation into a certain way of life. And this can be a problem as well, linking the generations, but linking them in the wrong way, in a destructive way. I'll give you one example of this. There are many people today, uh, especially those who advocate for what is called critical race theory, uh, who teach that a rising generation can be held responsible and held guilty of the sins of their ancestors. And so generational distinctiveness is lost and the current generation can actually be punished for the sins of a previous generation. On the view of critical race theory, guilt can be transferred from one generation to another or at least certain forms of guilt uh, amongst certain people. The guilt of some people can be passed on to their children. So they will say the sins of the fathers can and must be visited on the sons, even if the sons don't commit those same sins and even if they reject 
those sins. They still can be held accountable and they must pay. The living can be punished for the sins of the dead. They can be made to make reparations. And so critical race theorists, for example, this is, this is well known uh, because this gets talked about a lot, but critical race theorists will claim that all white people in America today bear the sins of their ancestors. Guilt is hereditary and so past sins of race-based slavery and racial segregation belong to later generations, even if those generations renounce those sins of the past, even if they're still held responsible and they still must pay. The generations are so tightly linked together in this way. So many, in fact, what you'll have, and I've, I've, I've seen this quite often in the church over the last several years, you'll have many Christians who will argue for this kind of thing and they will say that this is actually consistent with scripture and they will point to our doctrine of original sin and they'll say, well, Adam's sin was reckoned to his descendants. So why shouldn't the sins of white slave owners be reckoned to uh, their descendants, for example? Well, it is true. Uh, Adam's sin uh, is reckoned to his descendants, but Adam was a federal head. Adam was what we call a covenant head, a covenant head for the whole race. And not all of his sins were reckoned to his ancestors, only his original sin of failing his probationary test in the Garden of Eden, which was a unique situation. There's only one other man in history who has stood as a federal head with the destiny of others tied up in his action. And of course, that's Jesus, who is the second Adam. So there are only two men who absolutely determine the destinies of others who are connected to them, and that's Adam and Jesus. You know, if you think about this whole argument that critical race theorists make that uh, white Americans owe reparations, part of the problem with that is that white Americans don't have a federal head who represented them and acted on their behalf in a certain way. There's nothing analogous to what happens with Adam and Jesus. That analogy with original sin simply doesn't work. Besides, critical race theorists seem to ignore other texts of Scripture that stress personal accountability and personal responsibility. Texts like Ezekiel 18, which asks, should the son suffer for the iniquity of his father? And the answer in that context clearly is no. Not if he doesn't sin in the same way. He should not be punished for his father's iniquity. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor shall the father suffer for the iniquity of his son. Romans 14, 14, 12 says, each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. You will be judged according to your own deeds, not the deeds of others, even your relatives. Jeremiah 31, 30 says, everyone should die for his own iniquity. Deuteronomy 24, 16, father shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Personal responsibility is a major theme in scripture. And if you think about it, uh, the, the justice of this should be obvious. Suppose you have a father who's just a really bad father. And so he is, uh, he's an alcoholic, uh, he is abusive, so, so he's a drunkard, and he's abusive of his kids. Does it sound like justice to say that his kids are guilty of those sins, even if they reject those ways of living for themselves? Many of the father's sins in this particular case would be against his own children. So how is it fair to blame those kids? Those kids have already suffered because of their father's drunkenness and their father's abusiveness. To say that they're guilty of that drunkenness and that abusiveness is, quite frankly, insane. It is entirely 
unjust. But that's the kind of thing, now critical race theorists, of course, are very selective. They only pick out certain sins and certain groups of people to whom this applies. But it just shows you critical race theory's way of relating the generations is deeply flawed. And throughout the history of the human race, whenever hereditary guilt has been practiced in a culture, it has always led to bloodshed and to blood feuds. It makes peace and reconciliation impossible because the past cannot be changed, it can only be forgiven. If the sins of past generations are our sins, not because we repeat them in our own lives, but simply because of when and where we were born, then there is no hope, there is no way forward, there is no possibility of reconciliation. And that is why critical race theory actually produces the opposite of reconciliation. It, op it actually produces greater social division and alienation. Although I would say that's not a bug, that's a design feature. That's actually what's being aimed at, is to create division. And that's what it does. Thankfully, there is a better way of relating the generations, a way that avoids pop culture's pitting of the generations against one another and critical race theory's way of linking the generations, but in an unjust way. The right way to link the generations is found here in Psalm 78. Against that pop culture tendency to uh, set the generations at war with one another, Psalm 78 shows us that the generations are indeed linked. The generations really are connected, like links in a chain or like chapters in an unfolding story. And so each generation has a set of obligations to the previous generation and to the next generation but also against the view of critical race theory that one generation can be held responsible for the sins of a previous generation, Psalm 78 shows us that no matter how badly our fathers or our grandfathers may have failed as they did in Israel's history, Psalm 78 recounts that, God's purposes do not fail, and so there is always hope. There is always forgiveness. We are not doomed because of past generations' failures and sins. We're not doomed to repeat the sins of past generations ourselves. God allows each generation, as it were, to make a fresh start, to succeed where others in the past have failed. Each, each new generation has the opportunity to live righteously, even if the previous generation completely messed up. And indeed, that is our hope because God remains faithful to his covenant promises. And even when there is an unfaithful string of generations, those cycles of generational brokenness and of generational apostasy, those cycles of generational sin can be broken. God's grace and mercy can intervene. God's covenant promises endure. God is gracious to each new generation. Now, to be sure, we may still have to deal with the effects of the sins our ancestors committed, but that's different than bearing their guilt. We don't bear the guilt of the sins they committed. We may have to deal with the effects of the sins they committed. The generational effects of sin uh, is a reality, uh, and, and that's something that we'll uh, look into. But Psalm 78 reminds us, not only does sin have generational effects, but righteousness has generational effects as well. If one generation poisons the river of history, a righteous generation later on can filter the toxins out of the water and then leave a better legacy for their own children. If you are unfaithful today, 
you will make it much more difficult for future generations to be faithful. Your kids and your grandkids and your great-grandkids will have a much harder time because of your unfaithfulness. I had a pastor who was a, a, a mentor to me, uh, and he said, this was kind of his way of capturing this, he said, what I watch on TV tonight will have consequences for my great-grandchildren. Okay? That, that, that's, that's exactly right. Uh, if we're unfaithful today, we might make it harder for our great-great-grandchildren to be faithful down the line. But if you are faithful today, if you're faithful, you can make it much, much easier and much more likely that your kids and your grandkids and your great-grandkids will be faithful as well because you are paving the way for them. Your legacy matters. And that's what Psalm 78 is really about. God does judge his people collectively for their behavior. There is such a thing as corporate judgment. He'll judge groups for the sins or uh, practices that characterize them. But he does not actually punish people or discipline people for sins they had no part in. Ancestral guilt is simply not a biblical category. Again, the generations are connected, but not in the way some think. There's a more biblical way to understand this connectedness from one generation to the next. This is really the point I'm getting at here, and this is the point I think Psalm 78 is making. Everyone inherits a legacy, and everyone leaves a legacy. And the legacy you inherit is not automatically the legacy you will leave behind. So, for example, if your parents were divorced, that will impact you. Even though you're not guilty of the sin, you'll have to deal with the effects of that. That brokenness will affect you. And if you get divorced, that will be part of the legacy you leave to your children. That will impact your children. If your parents were happily married, that was a great blessing to you. That was a great privilege. That's quite possibly the greatest privilege of them all that you can inherit. It means you have a good foundation, but it does not guarantee that you will be happily married yourself. You've got to work hard to pass along a similar legacy to your children. Some people have a hellish heritage, but they break that cycle and leave a heavenly legacy behind. Others do the opposite. They have a heavenly legacy, but they leave behind a hellish heritage for their children. Some inherit a glorious legacy and wreck it. Uh, some inherit a broken legacy and repair it. But nothing happens automatically. Again, this is the point of Psalm 78. Every one of us inherits a legacy, and every one of us leaves a legacy. What's that legacy you've inherited, and what are you going to do about it? And what is that legacy you're leaving behind? The legacy you inherit does not determine what you do. It does not determine what your children will do. But it will be a powerful shaping force in your life. Now, Psalm 78 really is the record of just this kind of thing. Psalm 78 is the second longest psalm in the whole uh, book of Psalms. That's why I didn't try to read the whole thing to you this morning. But what's going on in Psalm 78? It tells the story of Israel, at least a huge chunk of Israel's history. It surveys the history of Israel basically from Moses to David. But it's not just the story of Israel. It's told from a certain perspective. It shows us how Israel has failed in one generation after another. Israel's failed in one generation after another, but it also shows us God's ongoing kindness to his people in one generation after another. God's great acts of kindness to his people, and a lot of these great acts of kindness are listed in this psalm, things like dividing the Red Sea in the Exodus, or raining down manna when they were wandering in the wilderness, or when he gave them the promised land, or when he defeated the Philistines after the Philistines had captured the Ark of the Covenant. 
But what this psalm shows is that despite God's repeated acts of kindness to his people, his people still rebelled again and again from one generation to the next. They continually forgot God and they grieved God by their rebellion. So what does this overview of Israel's history show? Well, it shows us that in Israel, generation after generation failed. And it is such a long string of failure, we might wonder, can this legacy ever be changed? Or is Israel just locked into this pattern of unbelief and rebellion? Psalm 78 shows how rotten the family tree of Israel had become, how much bad fruit there had been from one generation to the next, so much bad fruit over the centuries. But nowhere does Asaph, the psalmist, suggest that his generation is responsible for those past failures. Nowhere does he say that his generation is incapable of doing something different. Instead, what Asaph does is he uses those past generations where there was a failure of faith, he uses those past generations as a warning of what not to do, precisely because he wants his generation to make a different set of choices. So the past here serves as a warning precisely because they have the opportunity to do something different in the present. Oh, sure, again, there may be effects of past sin that they will have to deal with. Asaph is clear about that. They're not guilty of those sins, but they do have to deal with the effects of them. They're not doomed to repeat those sins. They can do better. Psalm 78 uses the past not to shame the Israelites, but to warn them and to call them to walk in a better way. Again, let me give you an example of this, kind of work this out. Suppose you come from a long line of family brokenness. And suppose that uh, in your family's history, there's been a lot of adultery and divorce and abuse. Uh, you will certainly have to deal with the effects of that. You're not guilty of those sins uh, unless you actually repeat them. Uh, but you are going to have to deal with the effects of that sin. But here's the thing. You should not assume that you are going to inevitably fall into the same sins. I've heard people who think this way. Well, I shouldn't get married because my parents got divorced and I don't want to get divorced. Well, who said you're going to get divorced? You get to have your own marriage and make your own decisions. Uh, my dad was a drunkard and I don't want to be a drunkard. Well, who's to say that you will be? You don't have to walk in those same sins, the sins of your father, you don't have to repeat those sins because God is kind. That's the point of Psalm 78. You know, again, I've heard some people say they don't want to have a family because they come from divorce or from a home where there was a lot of fighting and they don't want that. Well, fine, then don't have that. Psalm 78 shows you, you don't have to. God's grace can intervene in these situations. God's grace can contravene the brokenness of the past. God can raise up a faithful generation out of the brokenness. He can break that cycle of generational sin. In fact, in Psalm 78, it's really interesting. As you read through Psalm 78, you find towards the very end, Asaph announces where God has intervened and broken this cycle of generational apostasy. And it is with his servant, David. He speaks of God choosing his servant, David, and taking him from the sheepfolds and putting him on the throne to shepherd his people. And then it describes how David, with an upright heart, shepherded the people and guided them with a skillful hand. Now, of course, we know David did have his sins too. But the point here is that David broke the cycle of rebellion, or at least, I think this is the way to look at it, David is a pattern of the one to come, a greater David, who will break this cycle of rebellion, this pattern of covenant breaking. 
So in Psalm 78, David's generation is really the high point in Israel's history and proof that the nation does not have to wallow in sin and idolatry. Now again, David did not produce a very, you know, very much lasting faithfulness in Israel. But of course, David and his kingdom pointed ahead to a greater David who would bring in a greater kingdom. The ultimate and lasting breakthrough happens with the coming of Jesus. Jesus brings forgiveness. Jesus brings redemption. The power of Jesus is greater than the power of sin. The grace of Jesus is greater than unfaithfulness. The power of Jesus in your life means that you are free to live faithfully, even if your ancestors did not. Psalm 78 shows us something else. Not only can Jesus break generational cycles and patterns of sin, he actually enables us to establish new cycles and new patterns of righteousness in our families. Sinful legacies can be broken and replaced. Righteous legacies can be established. If you come from a family where there's this long line of brokenness, that line of brokenness can be interrupted. And a new kind of legacy can be established, a righteous legacy, a legacy of faithfulness. And you really see this in the first few verses that we read. Look at verse 2. Asaph says, I will open my mouth in a parable. Okay, parable here describes a riddle-like saying that requires wisdom to understand. You know, Jesus spoke in parables in Matthew 13 and elsewhere to fulfill this. The whole history of Israel here really is a parable, a kind of riddle. He wants them to reflect on this, and as they do so, as they reflect on the way he tells the story of Israel, they will grow in wisdom. Verse 4, he says, we will not hide these things from our children. Okay, how do you leave a legacy of righteousness to your children? Well, verse 4 tells us, we declare to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord, his might and the wonders he has done. Well, what has God done? What, what, what story are we going to tell our children? Verse 5, he has established a testimony in Jacob and a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach their children. Now, mothers teach also, obviously, but fathers are addressed here uh, and elsewhere in Scripture because fathers are the heads of their households. They have a special responsibility for the households that bear their names. So a dad needs to be able to stand up and say with Joshua, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Fathers need to lead the way in teaching these things, the might and the wondrous deeds of the Lord to their children. Fathers, this is your job. This is your mission. This is your task in the home. Think about Deuteronomy chapter 6, where Moses says, parents are to diligently teach God's words to their children. And they shall talk of God's law when they're sitting at home and when they're walking along the way, when they lie down and when they rise up. The child's whole life is to be saturated in the word of God. This is how you pass along a legacy of faithfulness. It's how you break a legacy of rebellion and how you establish a legacy of righteousness. You teach your children in this way. Deuteronomy 6 goes on, the words of God are to be a sign on your hand, of course, to govern what you do. They're to be like frontlets on your eyes to govern the way you see and interpret the world. They're to be on your doorposts governing your home life and they're to be on your city gates governing your public life. God wants his law applied in all of life. That's what Deuteronomy is 6 Deuteronomy 6 is teaching and it's a parental responsibility to train our children in the law of God and its comprehensive application. Its application to all of life. 
Now, I would argue that one of the best ways to make sure that the story of God's great deeds is proclaimed to your children is to make sure that you have your children in worship every Sunday, every Lord's Day. You bring them to church. You bring them under the public ministry of God's word. This is one of the best ways to train your children and make sure that this legacy of righteousness is passed on. You train your kids to participate in the liturgy in age-appropriate ways. Do family worship, certainly. Uh, You ought to be doing family worship every day. But that ought to be flowing out of gathering with God's people for public worship each Lord's Day. Training children to worship is hard work. I mean... I was a pastor, so I was up front every Sunday. My wife had to do this basically as a single mom, you know, train our kids how to worship. And and I've heard parents complain about this. Oh, you know, I've got to work so hard training my kids during the service. I don't get to hear every word of the sermon. Well, here's the thing. I don't get to participate in the service myself as much as I would want to. And this is my response to that. Training your children to worship is itself an act of worship. Training your children to worship is not a distraction from worship. It's one of the ways you worship God when we are gathered. Okay, you parents with little ones, you need to hear that and know that. Training your kids to worship is itself an act of worship. Deuteronomy 16, uh, Moses says, when God's people gather together for worship, he says, you shall rejoice before the Lord, you and your son and your daughter. In other words, when you have, when, when worship When the people are gathering for worship, bring your kids. Your kids are included. They're part of it. God wants them there. Joel chapter 2, he says, to gather the people for a worship assembly. He says, gather the people, the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and the nursing babies. That's how it is in Scripture again and again and again. When God's people gather for worship, the children are there. And that means there are people training Children, and that means that as you wrestle with your little ones on a Sunday morning, you are not alone in that. You are doing the same thing that God's faithful people have been doing for centuries, for generations upon generations. In Luke 18, the little children are brought to Jesus. Jesus says, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. And then Jesus took those children into his arms, even infants, and he blessed those children. You might ask the question, well, how do I get Jesus to bless my children today? How how can Jesus bless my children today? Well, you bring your children to the place where Jesus has promised to be, which is the gathering of his people for public worship. Covenant renewal on the Lord's Day, the Lord's Supper on the Lord's Day. You do that as a family. You bring your whole family to worship God. You get your kids to public worship. Worship. And, you know, I'll tell you this, I don't know what it's like here for y'all, but, you know, we, you know, even in the Bible Belt, we compete with Little League games and soccer games and gymnastics meets that now take place on Sunday and encroach upon that time uh, when God's people are gathered for worship. As a parent, you just have to decide what your priorities are. What's more important, winning that Little League championship or passing along a legacy of righteousness? Hopefully you can see which way the scales ought to tip. And the church is gathering Your children are going to hear of the Lord's wondrous deeds. And of course, God's greatest deed of all is the gospel, God's work of redemption through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, how he died for our sins and rose triumphantly over death, breaking its curse, how he ushered in his promised kingdom as promised by the prophets. That's the story that we and our children need to hear again and again and again. Psalm 78 is showing us 
the story of the kingdom belongs to our children and our children belong to the story. God has made promises to believing parents and those promises provide the whole framework for our mothering and fathering. We mother by faith. We father by faith. We base everything we do on God's covenant promises. All of our parental works flow out of the faith that we have in God's covenant promises. God's covenant is not just with individuals, it is with families, and so we can ask. What does it mean to be a covenant family, a covenant household? What is the legacy I want to pass on, the covenant legacy that I want to give to my children? One implication of this, obviously, is that our children are Christian children. Now, not by nature. Flesh can only give rise to flesh. But because of God's promise, because God has promised to put his spirit upon our children and make our children his own, our children are Christian children, and we are to raise them accordingly. That's really what Psalm 78 is all about. This is how you raise your children as covenant insiders, as insiders to God's covenant. They are part of God's people. And one of the things you need to do with your kids, and this, this, this is actually really helpful, I think, when you think about how the generations are divided against one another in our day, set against one another with their own culture and whatnot. This is one of those ways that you can build a strong link between the generations. You impress upon your children their Christian identity, their covenantal identity, and you do this from the very beginning of their lives. That obviously includes baptizing them uh, as babies, it includes teaching them everything God has commanded from their earliest days. This means that Christian parenting should be understood not as evangelism, but as discipleship. Think about it this way. This may not make a whole lot of sense to you, but it makes a lot of sense uh, to people where I come from. You know, it is football season in the Deep South. And uh, I don't know if you have big college football fans up here like we do down in the South. I mean, the South doesn't do a lot of things well, but we do college football really well in the South. We, we, you know, we got that covered. But one thing I've noticed over the years, and this is especially true in the state I live, Alabama, okay, one thing I've noticed over the years is that parents will not hesitate to impose their own college football loyalties on their children from their earliest of days. And so I've gone to visit a lot of babies in the hospital, or I've seen little babies being brought home from the hospital, and they're already dressed in that Auburn onesie or that Alabama onesie. The parents aren't messing around. They are passing on a legacy. They are going to teach their kid the cheers from the earliest age. They'll teach their kid the fight songs and the history of the program and who our rivals are who our heroes are, that is analogous to covenant parenting. We clothe our kids in Christ in the waters of baptism. They put on a a, a Jesus-sized onesie in baptism. They're now clothed in Christ. We teach them the rituals and the fight songs of the kingdom. We sang one of the great fight songs of the kingdom this morning, Psalm 110. We teach them who the heroes and villains of history are. We teach them about our rival, the evil one, Satan. We do all these things to inculcate in our children, not just an identity, but a loyalty, a loyalty to the kingdom of God. What parents in the deep South do not do is raise a child in a neutral way so he can grow up and make up his own mind about who he's going to pull for. And if he switches loyalties, well, that might be uh, worthy of disinheriting the poor kid. That's kind of like apostasy, okay? Okay. You might even say this is kind of an alternate religion we have. I had a pastor once that used to talk about how, uh, you know, Southerners worship creeping things like it talks about in Romans 1, you know, bulldogs and tigers and elephants, you know, the creeping things. 
And that may very well be true. But we got to understand, God calls us to pass along this covenant legacy, and that means inculcating in our children a covenant identity and a covenant loyalty. That is our calling as parents. That is what we are to pass along. That's how we pass the baton of the faith to the next generation. We are enculturating them into the kingdom of God, enculturating them into the lifestyle of the kingdom. Now, parents will do that with a football team. Obviously, the stakes are much, much higher when it comes to training our children in kingdom loyalty. We as parents have to work very hard at this. It is uh, something that requires great diligence to enculturate our kids in the kingdom in this way. But know this, as you seek to do this, you are working with the grain of God's covenant promise. You're going with the grain of God's covenant promise. And that means that as you as a parent work to inculcate these things in the life of your child, the Spirit is working with you with the same end in view. The Spirit is working in the heart of your child to develop this covenant loyalty. And as you raise up your children in the covenant and in the kingdom by faith, resting in God's covenant promises, you know what happens? The generations come to be linked by faith And by the covenant, a legacy of faithfulness and righteousness is created. The generations come to be linked by their trust in the wondrous deeds of the Lord. The generations are linked by a love for God, a love for God's law. They're bound together by God's transgenerational grace. And then you know what happens? Well, verses 5 and 6 of this psalm describe it. And this is really beautiful. Verses 5 and 6, he commanded our fathers to teach their children that the next generation might know him, the children yet unborn. Okay, so you got, you got a generation that's teaching their children, so the children not yet born. So you've already got three generations, you know, grandparents and then children and then grandchildren, that those children would arise and teach them to their children. That would be the great-grandchildren. You see how this is going. The generations are being tied to one another in faith. You've got at least four generations here mentioned. And the point of all this is verse 7, so that they, that is, so that each successive generation should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments and not be like their ancestors. See, that cycle's broken. Not be like their ancestors who were a stubborn and rebellious generation. The cycle of unbelief is broken and replaced by a legacy of faith. And just as the effects of sin can reverberate down through the generations, so too can the effects of righteousness reverberate down the corridors of history to future generations. This kind of covenant righteousness is powerful. This is how you break the death grip of the sexual revolution and all its toxicity, all its toxic effects in our culture. This is how you end the culture of death and establish a culture of life and righteousness. This is how you build Christendom. You cannot build a Christian civilization without multi-generational faithfulness. And that's what we're aiming at. Not just to have a Christian family, but a Christian civilization, a Christian world, a Christian planet. And you cannot get there in one generation. It takes multi-generational faithfulness to do it. And so Psalm 78 says we are to do this, that each generation should set its hope in God. And you can see how when this happens, when parents seek to pass along this legacy, how this creates synergy, yes, between the generations. Now the generations are moving with each other towards greater and greater faithfulness. But this also creates synergy between the mission of the church, which is to baptize and disciple nations, and the mission of the family, which is to baptize and disciple children. 
the mission of the church and the mission of the family come to dovetail together. And it's this glorious thing as the work of the church and the work of the Christian family reinforce one another. And so let us and our children and our great-grandchildren and our great-great-grandchildren not be like our fathers in Old Covenant Israel who were not faithful to God. Rather, let us set our hope in God and not forget his great works from one generation to the next. Let's pray and give God thanks. God, we do thank you that you are a good and faithful God. We thank you for your glorious might and all your wonderful works. Father, may we pass a legacy of faithfulness onto our children. Whatever legacy we might have inherited, would we pass along a legacy of faithfulness and righteousness to our children? And may they do so with their children and the children still to come so that from one generation to the next, we may see you build a godly civilization out of this multi-generational faithfulness. Father, we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.